Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's story is an unsolved mystery, which has confounded science for hundreds of years and captured the imagination of millions of believers and the doubts of many skeptics worldwide. The Shroud of Turin is a holy icon, and it's an enigma. It's really two unsolved mysteries in one. The first being... Is the Shroud of Turin the cloth that covered Jesus' body after his crucifixion? And two, how did the full image of a crucified man, who many believed to be Jesus, come to appear, front and back, from head to toe, all his wounds included, on that shroud? This story places you at the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth and allows you to follow the biblical story of the shroud, then describes the shroud and the results of photographic and scientific testing on it, which has raised a storm of controversy. We'll give you all sides of the story, as well as a number of side stories, not the least of which includes that of a Templar knight who came into possession of that holy icon. According to all four canonical Gospels, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the powerful Jewish governing body called the Sanhedrin, counted on his influence and very likely the fact that he was a relative, to have the courage to ask Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus, so he could give it a proper Jewish burial before the Sabbath arrived. This just wasn't done after crucifixions. Bodies, by some accounts, were usually either left on the cross to rot or burned. Joseph asked for and received permission to take the body to a tomb that he owned and prepare it for a Jewish burial. Here's how the Bible described what happened. The Gospel of Matthew 27, 57 described Joseph simply as a rich man and disciple of Jesus. According to Mark 15, 43, Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. And Luke 23, 50-56 adds that he had not consented to their decision and action. According to John 19, 38, Upon hearing of Jesus' death, this secret disciple of Jesus asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Joseph immediately purchased a linen shroud, according to Mark 15, 46, 
and proceeded to Golgotha to take the body of Jesus down from the cross, which he did at 3 p.m. that day. There, according to John 19, 39 and 40, Joseph and Nicodemus took the body and bound it in linen cloths with some 75 pounds of spices, those being aloe and myrrh, that Nicodemus, who was a powerful member of the Sanhedrin himself, had bought. These spices provide a powerful clue to the shroud's occupant, I believe, and this will be revealed a little deeper in this story. But it is important that you know what aloe and myrrh are, with an emphasis on the aloe. Many of our listeners have no doubt seen and used aloe, the leaves of which are long and pointed, and also full of a whitish liquid that is a healing balm to most people. The aloe of the New Testament is the aloe vera, which is a medicinal form of aloe. Some sources identify the aloe as the oldest medicinal plant. It's distributed in Mediterranean woodlands and shrublands in hard rock outcrops, including maritime sands. When aloe is harvested for its medicinal gel, older leaves are harvested as they're larger and contain more gel. The Israelite myrrh plant got its name myrrh, M-Y-R-R-H, because of its bitter taste. Around 1876 B.C., Jacob described myrrh as one of the best products of Canaan and directed his sons to take myrrh to Egypt to trade for grain. In present-day Israel, the myrrh tree grows in the biblical landscape reserve of Niat Kedumim. Although often referred to as a spice, myrrh is the dried resin from the myrrh tree. When the resin is harvested, lateral cuts are made on the trunk or branches. An aromatic gum resin exudes from the wounds. The two men preparing the body only had three hours on Friday, March 26, to deliver the body to Joseph's hillside tomb and finish its preparation before the Sabbath laws kicked into effect at 6 p.m. that evening, by which time the body had to be prepared, and it couldn't wait until after the Sabbath because Mosaic law demanded that the body of any Jew who had been hung on a cross be buried within 24 hours. There is no mention of them washing the body either, only one mention of a third person adding drops of perfume. Then, the day after the Sabbath, according to most canonical accounts, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Salome, the mother of James, brought perfume to anoint the body. The body was laying in the tomb, which was basically a small cave, the entrance now covered with large rock, and that guarded by a Roman, under Pilate's orders. It's also interesting to find that in all the accounts given, Jesus' body was referred to in Hebrew as the word meaning the body, and not the dead body, as one would expect. There was another word just for that. It is very possible that Jesus was still alive when he came down from the cross, even though the wound given by the Roman centurion seemed to indicate otherwise. A description of the preparation of Jesus was also written in the Gospel of Nicodemus. This survives today as an apocryphal gospel, one of the many found outside the Bible. One cloth was a 14-foot-long burial shroud called a sindon, the other a facial cloth called a sudarium. More detail on the shroud is coming just ahead. One strange item that was missing from the descriptions was a cloak, which normally would have been wrapped around the entire body and shroud. Interestingly, three pieces of raiment were asked for in Jewish code at that time, but only two were used in the biblical story. 
The man-made cave had been hewn from rock in the garden of Joseph's house nearby. The Gospel of Matthew alone suggests that this was Joseph's own tomb. Various canonical Gospels relate different versions of the story, that when Jesus' closest followers came to the tomb, it was empty, save for the burial cloths. In some writings of the 2nd through 4th century, namely, the Gospel of Nicodemus, the Acts of Pilate, the Gospel of Gamaliel, the Mysteries of the Saviors, and Acts. The story goes that the Lord, after the resurrection, handed the sheet and the sidarium to Joseph of Arimathea, knowing that these pieces of cloth were to be considered holy, and that they needed to be hidden and protected. Joseph, whom the Romans called the Tin Man, had made his fortune being a provider of tin to the Romans, tin mined from tin mines he owned in Cornwall, England, to which, according to some legends, he returned to live out his later years. Knowing that these pieces of cloth were to be considered holy and needed to be hidden and protected, Joseph may very possibly have entrusted those artifacts to the defenders of Jerusalem, the Knights Templar. More on that legend later. And the legend that he had entrusted those artifacts to the Knights Templar becomes at least probable being that the first accepted document of the existence of Christ's burial shroud places the shroud in the possession of the family of a very famous Templar. As for the Sindon, the shroud, and the Sudarium, the face cover, they were somehow separated and ended up in separate churches in Europe, and both have since been subjected to intense testing, the results of which will be shared soon. But here you'll have a vital hint. The blood on both matched. And here is the largely unknown story on the Sudarium, the face cover. Much less known than the Shroud of Turin, but still quite puzzling, is a related and smaller piece of cloth known as the Sudarium of Oviedo. Some contend that this fabric was the piece of cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' head while he was dead on the cross. There is actually a biblical basis for this belief. In chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, it explicitly says that there was a cloth separate from the burial shroud that was used to wrap around Jesus' head. As with the shroud, the Sudarium of Oviedo has a colorful history and has its believers and its skeptics. The first mention of its existence occurred in 570 AD when the enigmatic 6th century pilgrim Antoninus of Piacenza claimed the cloth was housed in a monastery near Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't a very safe place for that relic, and it was taken from there in the 610s, just ahead of the invading Persian armies. It was then carried to Spain by way of northern Africa, and it eventually found a permanent place in the northern Spanish town of Oviedo. Unlike the shroud, there is no photographic image of a human head on the cloth, but some believers have stated that the bloodstains on the sudarium match up to apparent wounds on the head of the image on the shroud. Using a method called polarized image overlay technique, scientists have matched more than 100 bloodstain locations on the sudarium with identical bloodstain sources on the shroud. It is also purported that the position of the stains on the cloth show that the person whose head it covered died in an upright position. The all-important carbon dating test has estimated the sudarium to be from the 7th century, but immediately after this result, the scientist who performed the test called them imprecise and stated that further tests were needed to arrive at a definitive dating. 
an intensive study by the investigation team of the Spanish Center for Syndonology, which is the study of the shrouds, continues that the staining on the sudarium was made in several different body positions, and they created artificial heads to attempt to replicate those stains on the cloth. Their study also found small pointed blood stains on the section that would have been on the back of the head, which believers contend are from the crown of thorns. Another scientist examined the pollen attached to the sudarium and found examples from Palestine, North Africa, and Spain, but no other European countries outside of Spain. Interest in the sudarium as a possible relic and scientific object of study is gaining a lot of momentum, even though it's doubtful it will ever equal the same interest that the Shroud has. There was a conference on the sudarium in 1994, and further studies are waiting in the wings. In the meantime, pilgrims and the curious can go to Oviedo's Cathedral of San Salvador, where the ark containing the sudarium is displayed year-round, and the cloth itself is shown three times a year. Let's assume that the shroud and the face cloth were, and are, genuine artifacts. How did they get from Palestine to Europe? There are a number of ways that could have happened, and we'll share one enduring legend here at this point in the story, and then describe the shroud. As the biblical story goes, after Christ's crucifixion, Jesus' followers were hunted down and often killed or imprisoned, mainly by Saul with the help of Roman legions, who wanted to stamp out this dangerous subversion of Judaism that came to be known centuries later as Christianity. It would be 300 years of hiding for the new believers, but even underground, the story and message of Jesus was spreading. Christianity finally was accepted in 313 A.D. by Roman Emperor Constantine and ratified with the Edict of Milan. It is purely legend that Joseph and others who were Jesus' closest followers, among them the three Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mary Cleopas, and Mary Salome, were spared by Saul and set adrift in a sailless and rudderless boat in the Mediterranean, finally reaching the coast of France and spreading the words of Jesus and the story of his resurrection throughout Europe. It has also been said that Joseph carried with him some treasured memories of Jesus, one of those being the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper, called the Holy Grail, and two, the holy burial shroud and face cloth that Jesus had handed him. Again, purely unsubstantiated legend. And here is that promised information regarding the shroud. The Shroud is housed safely in the Chapel of the Holy Shroud, located just outside the Cathedral of Turin in northern Italy, if you want to take a look. But modern views of the famous Pia photo negatives, which will be described in a few minutes, are what really give you the definition. The Shroud, now called the Shroud of Turin, due to its location in Turin, Italy, is a 14-foot, 5-inch long, by 3-foot, 7-inch wide linen cloth which definitely carries the image of a crucified man, whom many believe to be Jesus of Nazareth. Thanks to modern advances in photography, researchers can study the shroud carefully as every scar and wound on this crucified body is displayed in incredible detail. As mentioned, you can search detailed pictures on the internet and at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. He is lying on his back, naked, hands folded across his groin. You can see he was laid on one half of the 14-foot-long burial cloth, head toward the middle, 
the other half having been pulled over his head and ending past his feet, allowing us to see all of his body, front and back, head to toe. Some of the more tangent arguments against this image being that of Jesus are, as we look at the long hair, it appears as though the man is standing rather than lying down. The long hair does not appear to fall back from the sides of the head as it would while in a prone position. The face looks like that of a much older man, and critics say it looks as though his arms have been elongated, as his hands are covering his groin. However, if you try it, guess what? Your hands probably reach that far. I just tried it, and mine do. So those critics must have short arms. And those are just a few of the critiques of the image on the shroud. Looking at the face, the hair is long and parted in the middle. At the top of the head is what looks like a burst of static electricity. That's the only way I can describe it. The nose is long and straight. The eyes are wide and showing deep sockets, appearing to be closed in the negative. One cheek is very swollen due to what appears to forensic scientists as a deep trauma. The mustache is drooping and falls over the lips on each side at a different angle. There are intermittent bloodstains at the top of the forehead and on the back side of the head consistent with puncture marks made by a crown of thorns. The cheekbones are pronounced, and he has a goatee. To me, he doesn't look like a Palestinian Jew. But then again, I'm no expert at judging images of beaten and crucified men, days after they've died underneath the shroud. Early images of Jesus supposedly drawn on walls, and those are extremely rare. One dating around 400 A.D. was discovered by the University of Haifa just last year. Show Jesus with the long nose, big eyes, but with short curly hair, which we would tend to expect from someone whose family came from northern Israel. And he probably had olive skin. It wasn't until the 5th century that images show Jesus with long hair, and of course he turns as white as a Dutchman in European art as it flourished during the Renaissance. All those artists were trying to do was honor and revere their Lord and Savior, so they drew him as their minds pictured him not a part of a preconceived racist crime or cover-up as some like to think today. And by the way, Jesus is described in Revelations, the only description of him in the Bible that's known, as having snow-white hair and beard. But keep in mind, that was a vision. Revelations was written in about 96 AD, meaning about 62 years after Christ's death, assumedly by John the Elder of Ephesus, who may or may not have been John the Apostle, in his later years. That's also been a matter of debate, as is much of what's found in the Bible, still the most popular book worldwide. And here's the big one. Carbon dating tests run by three well-known universities all placed the shroud, at least that one small same piece they all tested, which was the inside fold of a corner, to the 14th century, which is roughly the time in which the first mention of the Jesus shroud as being connected with the church was first documented. And at that time, the shroud was declared a forgery, and the man who did it apparently pled guilty. The problem there is that the method of how the shroud was done was never given. And as you begin to look at the analysis done on the shroud, you'll find that the very best of scientists and researchers cannot explain how that micro-thin image could have been placed on that shroud other than in some type of powerful burst of light and energy and that still can't be duplicated. The Shroud of Turin 
and the Sidorum are the only relics in existence which are currently considered by many to have come in contact with Jesus. Many say the shroud is a fake, a hoax. Others say it's authentic, but it doesn't show the image of Jesus. Others say it is Jesus. Literally thousands of opinions and hypotheses have been put out there. As mentioned, no one can say with authority how the image was transferred to the linen or how a 14th century hoaxer could have done it, except that a top team of scientists say that the image was not painted or placed on that shroud. Opposing arguments and theories have been swirling around this shroud for decades, and despite anything you think you know about carbon dating results, the real answer of dating is still unsolved and may never be solved. That it is an authentic shroud that once covered a crucified man at least 600 years ago is no longer doubted by most, since a carbon dating analysis was done by those three separate universities. Testing with ultraviolet light in 2011 and using infrared light and spectroscopy in 2013 has placed the shroud another 1,300 years back to the time of Jesus. That this shroud may well have covered Jesus is believed by millions and provides existing witness to the story of the crucifixion as well as, some say, the resurrection. The million-dollar questions that you need to keep in mind as we unravel this incredible story are How did the image showing the entire body, front and back, including the hair, face, nail puncture wounds in wrists and ankles, the centurion spear mark on the side, the wounds on the back from the terrible whipping he received, and marks left around the head from the crown of thorns, all come to be on this linen. Because the images weren't painted on, and they are forensically detailed. And the blood, by the way, tested A.B., in preparation for this story, I did spend a respectable amount of time viewing video documentaries and reading all types of articles, the last one being a 19-page detailed forensic study complete with photos covering the wounds that the crown of thorns made on the front and back of the head. I think this and the spices used on the body are important keys to determining whose image is on this shroud, but I'm getting ahead of things here. Here's the story of how the Shroud of Turin, which for years was treated as a holy relic by believers, became famous worldwide. As previously stated, the Shroud is rectangular, measuring approximately 14 feet 5 inches by 3 feet 7 inches. The cloth is woven in a 3 to 1 herringbone twill, composed of flax fibrils. The Shroud's most distinctive characteristic is a faint brownish image of a front and back view of a naked man with his hands folded across his groin. The two views are aligned along the midplane of the body and point in opposite directions. The front and back views of the head nearly meet at the middle of the cloth. The shroud to the naked eye doesn't tell you much. That it was held to be sacred and said to be the burial cloth that was used to cover Jesus does. But in 1898, an event took place that revealed the image that we see today showing the exact details of the man whom the shroud covered, opening a wide path for research and opinion. That year, 1898, the city of Turin was celebrating the 400th anniversary of Turin Cathedral, and as part of that celebration, a sacred art exhibition was planned. Since a public display of the shroud 
would have required permission from King Umberto I of Italy, who owned it. Plans were made for two artists to paint realistic replicas of the shroud to be used instead. These paintings were made, but they were never used as part of the exhibition. The head of the Shroud Commission, Baron Mano, petitioned the king for a public display and also asked for the right to photograph the shroud with the help of an amateur photographer named Secondo Pia to promote the exhibition. The king approved the public display of the shroud for the exhibition and later also allowed for it to be photographed. No one knew yet that a much clearer and detailed reverse image existed on that shroud, for, as we said, the faint face image on the shroud couldn't be clearly observed or recognized with the naked eye. It was real faint and not detailed. You could tell it was a person, but that was about it. The eight-day exhibition was just about to start, and it was too late for Pia's proposed photograph to be part of the promotional campaign, but he took that opportunity to be the man to take the first photograph of the shroud. On May 25, 1898, Pia set up equipment in Turin Cathedral. Two other men, Father Sano Solaro and the head of cathedral security, Lieutenant Felice Fino, were also present and took part in the photography. It was one of the first times an electric light bulb was used to take a photograph. Pia used a portable generator to power the lamps. The first session was interrupted by the opening of the cathedral doors at just the wrong time, so they had to schedule another shoot for the evening of May 28th, at which time Pia returned for a second session at about 9.30 p.m. and took a few more exposures. Improving on his first effort, he varied the exposure times and the lighting. At around midnight, the three men went back to develop the plates. To all of their astonishment, the reverse plate showed the image of a man and a face that had never before been seen clearly at all with the human eye in startling detail. Pia later said that he almost dropped and broke the photographic plate in the darkroom from the shock of what appeared on it. That image, remember when we used to take our pictures to have them developed at the nearest store and you get a set of color pictures and then you'd also get a set of negatives? Well, this was the perfect negative. That image soon made it into the national newspaper Osservatore Romano and that led to 30 years of debates about whether or not Pia had doctored the picture in some way to which he and his two witnesses swore that they did not. Thirty-three years later, during which time Pia's amazing find was picked apart like a Thanksgiving turkey. Now in 1931, a professional photographer, Giuseppe Henri, also photographed the shroud, and his findings supported Pia, who by now was in his 70s, but he was still able to be there for the viewing and was finally proven right. What a moment! And that's really when the debate shifted to how that image got onto the shroud, and not whether Pia had faked it in some way. The image of the man of the shroud has a beard, mustache, and shoulder-length hair parted in the middle. He is muscular and tall, being five foot seven inches in height. Reddish-brown stains, which have been shown to be blood stains, are found on the cloth. These wound marks correlate with the original image, as well as the biblical description of the death of Jesus by crucifixion. Once the image was established, the race to discover the real history of the shroud was on, and it hasn't slowed down yet. Here's where the science kicks in, and here is where it gets really interesting. 
The initial steps toward the scientific study of the shroud were taken soon after that first set of black-and-white photographs became available to the public early in the 20th century. In 1902, Yves Delage, a French professor of comparative anatomy, published the first study on the subject. Delage declared the image was anatomically flawless and argued that the features of rigor mortis, wounds, and blood flows were evidence that the image was formed by direct or indirect contact with a corpse. The first direct examination of the shroud by a scientific team was undertaken in 1969 to 1973 in order to advise on the preservation of the shroud and to determine specific testing methods. This led to the appointment of an 11-member Turin Commission to advise on the preservation of the relic and on the specific testing. Five of those commission members were scientists, and preliminary studies of samples of the fabric were conducted in 1973. In 1976, physicist John P. Jackson, thermodynamicist Eric Jumper, and photographer William Modern used image analysis technologies developed in aerospace science for analyzing the images of the shroud. In 1977, these three scientists and over 30 others performed the Shroud of Turin Research Project. In 1978, this group, often called STURP, S-T-U-R-P, was given direct access to the shroud. They were all experts in their respected fields, and they did a thorough and careful analysis. Also in 1978, independently from the STURP research, Giovanni Tamborelli obtained at Seaselt a 3D elaboration from the shroud with an even higher resolution than Jumper and Matern had gotten with Sturp. After years of back-and-forth debating, the Holy See permitted a radiocarbon dating on portions of the swats taken from a corner of the shroud. Independent tests in 1988 at the University of Oxford and the University of Arizona and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology concluded with 95% confidence that the shroud material dated somewhere between 1260 and 1390 A.D. That was bad news for believers at the time, as this 13th to 14th century dating is obviously much too recent for the shroud to have been associated with Jesus of Nazareth. And that negativity received so much press that it left most people convinced that Jesus could not have been under that shroud. Most people still believe this today, and it may well be true, but a whole truckload of other really good studies has been sort of overlooked. It wasn't until later that people started asking questions like, well, if not Jesus, who was it? And how did the image get on the shroud in the first place? And who did it? The detractors also say that the dating also matches the first appearance of the shroud in church history, although we'll note dozens of mentions in non-church history that occurred centuries before that. Some proponents for the authenticity of the shroud have attempted to discount the radiocarbon dating result by claiming that the sample may represent a medieval invisible repair fragment rather than the image-bearing cloth. However, all of the hypotheses used to challenge the radiocarbon dating have been scientifically refuted, including the medieval repair hypotheses and the biocontamination hypotheses, which claim that a natural aging of the shroud created a thin type of mold that interfered with the carbon dating and the carbon monoxide hypothesis, using the fact that a terrible fire in the church in which the metal-covered box containing the shroud was exposed to tremendous heat 
and that heat altered the chemical makeup of the shroud within the box. Tests were also run to see what pigments comprised the image on the shroud, the purpose there being to identify a substance that could have been applied to create the image, but those failed to show the existence of any pigments at all, so the image wasn't painted on in any way. In the year 2000, more tests were done to determine the date of the fabric, and these tests provided conflicting results, one saying that the material could not have come from first century Israel, the other saying, yes, it could have, and not only it could have, but it did. In 1997, Avinoam Danon, a botanist at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, reported that he had identified chrysanthemum coronarium, cystus creticus, and zygophyllum, whose pressed image on the shroud was first noticed by Alan Wanger in 1985 on the photographs of the shroud taken in 1931. He reported that the outlines of the flowering plants, and this is interesting, would point to March or April and in the environs of Jerusalem. In a separate report in 1978, Danon and Uri Baruch reported on the pollen grains taken from the cloth samples, stating that they were appropriate to the spring in Israel. Max Fry, a Swiss police criminologist who initially obtained pollen from the shroud during the Stirp investigation, stated that of the 58 different types of pollens found, 45 were from the Jerusalem area, while 6 were from the eastern Middle East, with one pollen species grown exclusively in Istanbul, and two found in Edessa, Turkey. And by the way, Edessa, Turkey, was at one time a center for a type of Christianity called Syriac Christianity. It became a center after Rome, which had conquered it in the year 232 A.D., became Christianized in 313, meaning that it would have been possible for the shroud to have traveled there where it might have collected some pollen. And that mention of Edessa, Turkey, is worth a comment. Some of you Christian scholars out there would be disappointed if I didn't share this in the shroud story. There is a legend called the Legend of the Mandelian, and it goes like this. The story of the Mandelian is likely the product of centuries of development, a lot like the tales of King Arthur. People just kept adding verses to it. And there were a couple of different versions. One version comes from the Golden Legend, which is a collection of hagiographies compiled by Jacobus de Verajan. And it goes like this. The king Abgarus became very sick and sent an epistle unto Jesus, asking for healing. And Jesus answered him, writing that he would send him one of his disciples, Jude Thaddeus, to heal him. And when Abgarus saw that he might not see God presently, he sent a painter unto Jesu Christ for to figure the image of our Lord, to the end that at least he might see him by his image, whom he might not see in his visage. And when the painter came, because of the great splendor and light that shone in the visage of our Lord Jesus Christ, he could not behold it, nor could he counterfeit it by any figure. And when our Lord saw this thing, he took from the painter a linen cloth and set it upon his visage, and imprinted the very physiognomy of his face therein, and sent it unto the king Abgarus, who so much desired it. And in the same history is contained how this image was figured. It was well-eyed, well-browed, a long visage or cheer, and inclined, which is a sign of maturity or ripe sadness. Other versions say that King Abgar sent a painter who painted Jesus' image on cloth. At any rate, that cloth and that image, however it was made, came to be called the Holy Mandelian. 
"'That holy Mandilion disappeared again "'after the cessations conquered Edessa in 609. "'At that time the image of Edessa "'was taken to Constantinople, "'where it was received amidst great celebration "'by Emperor Romanos I Lecopenos, "'who deposited it in the Theotokos of the Pharaoh's Chapel "'in the great palace of Constantinople. "'Not inconsequentially, "'the earliest known Byzantine icon of the Mandilion, "'or Holy Face as it was called, preserved at St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt, is dated 945. The Mandelian remained under imperial protection until the Crusaders sacked the city in 1204 and carried off many of its treasures to Western Europe. Although the image of Edessa is not mentioned in this context in any contemporary document, similarly, it has been claimed that the Shroud of Turin disappeared from Constantinople in 1204 as well, when Crusaders looted the city and the Knights Templar were heavily involved in that crusade, which was the fourth and last crusade. The leaders of the crusader army in this instant were French and Italian from Venice, and it is believed that somehow because of this the shroud made its way to France. A small part of a relic believed to be the same as this was one of a large group sold by Baldwin II of Constantinople to Louis IX of France in 1241 and housed in the Saint-Chapelle in Paris, which was home for a time of the Shroud of Turin, until it finally disappeared during the French Revolution. The famous Portuguese Jesuit, Geronimo Lobo, who visited Rome in 1637, mentions the sacred portrait sent to King Abgar as being in this city. He writes, I saw the famous relics that are preserved in that city as in a sanctuary, a large part of the Holy Cross, pieces of the crown and several thorns, the sponge, the lance, St. Thomas's finger, one of the thirty coins for which the Savior was sold, the sacred portrait, the one that Christ our Lord sent to King Abgaro, the sacred staircase on which Christ went up and down from the praetorium, the head of the Holy Baptist, the column, the altar on which St. Peter said Mass, and countless other relics. And that ends our account of the legend of the Mandelian and the image of Edessa. It's time to get back to the Shroud. In 2017, a new examination claimed that the most abundant pollen on the relic may be attributed to the genus Helichrysum. According to the author, palynologist Marzia Boy, it confirms and authenticates the theory that the corpse kept in the Shroud received a funeral and burial with all the honor and respect that would have been customary in the Hebrew tradition. Amazing stuff, but I can tell you this, and I can't find mention of this anywhere. I was studying the pictures of the face and head, and just to the left of the head, you can see three pointed aloe leaves. Hello! If you take a close look at the image, you'll see it as well. That does support the biblical account of the preparation done by Joseph and Nicodemus. And it brings up a fair question for skeptics who say it's all a hoax. A hoax perpetrated in any part of the world that lacked aloe would have been impossible. And most of the world lacked aloe. Run a search, and you'll find that aloe originates from the Arabian Peninsula, but grows wild in tropical, semi-tropical, and arid climates around the world. Not in Europe, where they said the shroud was created as a hoax. And a hoaxer wouldn't have known the unusual custom the Jews had of mixing myrrh and aloe within the shroud. And aloe was not used as burial preparation in Europe, ever.
Bingo! There's one for you skeptics to figure out. Thanks for joining us, everyone, for part one of The Shroud of Turin. A real mystery, and one which is full of clues to ponder so far, with more coming up. The carbon dating places it in the 13th to 14th century, but was that somehow off? Those three universities all had to take turns sharing that one small sample taken from a small piece of the corner. Some say they should have had access to more samples. And the pollen testing sounded very convincing, and being able to see aloe leaves in the photo. Not to mention scars and wounds, all consistent with the story of the crucifixion. Be sure to chime in at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes, to our Shroud of Turin post there. And join us, leave a thread. Ask some questions, leave some answers. But your opinions are always welcome. In part two, the Knights Templar enter the story, as the Shroud becomes the property of relatives of a famous French knight who took part in the sack of Constantinople. A big mistake that ended up costing the Knights their lives and reputations. And the life of Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, who some people think is the figure imaged on the Shroud. Plus, we'll cover the story of Barbara Frail, who is a researcher that works the classified depths of the Vatican to find historical gems like the one we'll share with you next week, along with more legends and history that I know you'll find interesting. If you like our show, help a friend to subscribe to us. That's the biggest favor you can do for us, in addition to leaving a review at Apple, CastBox.fm, or Stitcher.com. And here are some of those reviews now. This one just came in today. Five stars. Great subject matter and wonderful, sincere narration. These true tales and the exploits of the heroes featured are a delight and an inspiration. Mr. H's narrative style is engaging and sincere. I can't recommend this podcast enough. It's Theater for the Mind. That one from Foy Greenwood, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one came in yesterday. Thank you, five stars for not sugarcoating the horrible atrocities the Japanese did to our servicemen and women POWs. My grandmother hated the Japanese government and emperor all her life because her best friend and cousin's sons were murdered on the Bataan Death March. They, of course, did not find this out until the war was over, exactly what had happened to them. All I always remembered her refusal to ride in my father's new Japanese car in the 1970s. A die-hard Yankee Republican she always said General MacArthur and Truman should have hanged the Emperor. I, on the other hand, loved the Japanese people and the time I spent there as a young Marine. That one from Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great listening, five stars. Great podcast. Look forward to listening every new release. Five stars for sure. That one from 409SES, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great, five stars. One of my favorite podcasts. Sometimes the sound quality of the telephone guest is a little crackly, but the presenter is great, and he speaks with so much passion and interest. That one from Ray Jung Kaijun, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, phenomenal, five stars. Have been listening for years now, and figured it's time to send my love. Absolutely love this podcast. I've fallen asleep to it hundreds of times, as I always listen to podcasts at bedtime, and continue where I last remember while I'm making breakfast in the morning. This is one of my top three. Well done, well researched, and never dull. 
That one from Tiff17, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, first rate, five stars. The host is engaging and lively. Great sound quality. The content is fascinating and varied. This is a great podcast. If you love well-known history subjects with little-known nuggets of info sparkled through it, you'll love this one. That one from Neutrondon, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, fun podcast. If you like Mythbusters, you'll like John's show. He researches all the details from urban legends and myths and then tells us all about what he found. Give it a listen. That one from T. Parsons, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you also very, very much for leaving these reviews and for sharing our podcast with others. We appreciate it, and that's how we grow. We'll see you next Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, with the Shroud of Turin, Part 2. I think most people wonder what we felt when we were there to examine the shroud. And uh, under the circumstances, because we were there to do science, we had to suspend some of our, more of our personal feelings and sort of set them aside because we had a very ambitious series of tasks to perform in a very short period of time. I don't think it was lost on anyone that we were doing something of historic nature. Once our evidence was collected and our data reduced and our papers published, um, I eventually came to a point, and it took many years, but I eventually came to a point where I had to apply uh, what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said out of the lips of Sherlock Holmes, that if you eliminate all the possibilities, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, is most likely the truth. And without a doubt, I was absolutely forced into accepting, because there was no other possible explanation, this has to be what it appears to be. People often ask me, does this prove the resurrection? Or is this evidence of the resurrection? Now, that's a real problem for somebody from the scientific background, because resurrection isn't something we can go into a laboratory and test. We can't go into a lab and decide, uh, resurrect people to see what kind of images we can make. So resurrection becomes more a test of faith than science. But I always point out the shroud did not come with a book of instructions. So the answer to faith isn't going to be on that piece of cloth, but more likely in the eyes and the hearts of those who look upon it. <laughs>